Uh, don't hesitate. Um, we are on St. Augustine this morning. It's our second week. And uh, uh, how many of y'all, well, I'm not going to ask you to hold up your hand. How many of y'all, um, oh, lessons down here, Carol, thanks. Oh, he just caught the visual. That's all right, Steve. Go home and mow your yard and you'll understand the St. Augustine joke. Um, we, uh, uh, I don't know how many of you heard this morning uh, the sermon, but I found it interesting. Uh, uh, he made some wonderful points that, that spoke to me and, and uh, uh, helped me to, to more fiercely uh, focus on my life and what I need to be doing with it. Uh, uh, and he's a very entertaining speaker. Uh, but it was interesting to look at his use of the Old Testament because the way he looked and used the Old Testament story out of Exodus 4 was very much like origin that we studied that's a couple of months ago. If you don't have the origin lesson, get it. But it's an allegorical use of the Old Testament. Where he argue, said, you know, the staff represented Moses' family, his earning of a living, how he took care of his kids. So when God said, lay down your staff, God's saying, lay down all of those things and give it up. That's very much an allegorical interpretation. He's not, he's not escaping from the literal perspective of it actually happened, but he's saying on a deeper meaning that's what it was. And that's the allegorical uh, uh, approach. Um, uh, uh, you know, he did the same thing with the leprosy. He said the leprosy represents uh, compromise. And so when he put it over his heart and he pulled his hand out, that's God saying that what's in your heart will come out. And if you compromise in your heart, you'll see the disease on the outside. Those are both biblical truths, okay? But to go and use that passage, we need to, to look at and say, ah, this is an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. And I, I'm not throwing rocks at it. I'm merely illuminating what it is. As opposed to, for example, St. Augustine. St. Augustine had read a lot of origin, but St. Augustine made a real turn as a theologian and wrote actual commentaries, for example, the literal interpretation of Genesis, which deals with the first six chapters of Genesis. And what, what Augustine tried to do very much so is try to steer the ship a little bit away from allegorical because while in the hands of a good preacher, biblically based, it can produce a good, sound message that touches people, like we saw today, it can also be abused by people who are not biblically based, who want to use it to trumpet a different message. And so Augustine really tried to move that, that ship. And uh, it was interesting, Dale Hearn got a copy of the book this morning, 20 Things You Should Read, which is one of the uh, uh, Dave Edwards uh, books. And the very first uh, person he's listed under here as uh, 20 Things You Should Read is St. Augustine. And uh, uh, he's got a wonderful selection here and, and some other good people. St. Augustine is definitely worth our time. Now, this morning's lesson, if you'll recall, those of you who were in our class for biblical literacy, and we went from Genesis through Revelation over a three-year time period and tried to, to address you know, what we need to know about the Bible to be biblically literate. At the end of that class, or toward the end, I held a vote. I said, where do you want to go from here? And I gave you three different options. One option was church history literacy, and that's what won the votes. So that's what we're doing. 
Option two was starting all over again. And that got third place, so evidently y'all didn't like that class. <laughs> Option, and those were the people that had just stayed to the end. Can you imagine everybody else that showed up and never came back? Um, <laughs> Uh, option number three I gave you was theological literacy. The idea of let's dig real down and, and, and drill down and, and find out, just become literate on issues of theology. That actually got second place votes. It was a distant second. And so what I said is, y'all stay tuned because I'll take that second place vote and I'll plug it in while we're dealing with church history we will pause periodically for classes that deal with the development and history of theology. And we've done that, whether you realize it or not. We did that when we dealt with the Trinity and, and the issues surrounding uh, the Council of Nicaea and some others. Well, this morning, we're going to do that again. But as we do it, I need to first start with confessing my failures in class. I don't have enough time to confess all of them, but I will confess one. I made a representation to you that I have not uh, kept, and so I need to just get it out there. I have uh, failed to answer all of the questions. I had said originally we'll have a question Sunday, and questions that come in I'll answer. I've tried to answer some on the Internet. Danny Way sent me one this week that I got uh, uh, in Guatemala, and, and uh, it was, Will My Dog Be in Heaven?, um, Howard fortunately answered it for me and sent him back an email and said, didn't you see the movie? You cretin, all dogs go to heaven. And, uh, Danny said, thanks. I feel better now. So I don't have to answer that one, but I've tried to answer as many as I can over the internet. And I just apologize to you that I haven't answered them all. I got one from Dale Hearn, uh, yesterday. Why is my grass called St. Augustine? <laughs> And then he proceeded to give me about five minutes of mowing tips. <laughs> well, Dale, I have an answer to that question for you. You see, it all goes back to St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the United States, as I mentioned last week. I might also add, Augustine's mother was named, anybody remember? Monica. How do you say saint in Spanish? Santos. Or if it's a female saint, Santa. Okay, did you know that just as Augustine has a city in the U.S. named after him, his mother has one named after her, Santa Monica. And if you've ever been to Santa Monica, California, you'd know she's cringing in her grave. Um, <laughs> sunset strip, the whole thing right there. Santa Monica. Anyway, St. Augustine, Florida is so named because when General Pedro Menendez uh, comes to the coast of Florida to uh, uh, fix things up for the Spanish Empire, uh, he actually cites where they build St. Augustine on the feast day of St. Augustine, August 28th. And that's why he named the town that they founded there eventually St. Augustine. And it is from St. Augustine, Florida that our grass gets its name because from the 1800s on, uh, Florida has been one of the principal places where this grass grows. Now, they call the grass different names in other places. That's enough of that. This is biblical literacy, not horticulture. 
So with that, uh, St. Augustine, Florida is named after the feast day of St. Augustine. Let's go ahead and redirect the class to this St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, a town in North Africa where St. Augustine became the bishop. That happened after the class material that we studied last week, after he becomes a Christian, after his mother dies, and after Augustine then returns to North Africa, he subsequently dubbed uh, to become the bishop, didn't want to do it. They hauled him into the job anyway and uh, forced him to become the pastor of that church. Augustine wrote prolifically. And Augustine was one of the principal uh, 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 foundation theologians for the Catholic Church and actually for all of Christianity, Western Christianity at least. Um, Augustine wrote and, and said things that affected Calvin, uh, that affected Luther, that affected countless people uh, for over a thousand years. He is, Augustine is, one of my personal favorite to read today because he continues to challenge me and he continues to, 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 to teach me, uh, a, a really an incredible guy. There is, as a result, an entire study in the field of theology. Theology meaning the study of God. There is an entire area called Augustinianism. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, they've turned him into an ism. <laughs> I, I, I would love to have an ism after me. Um, just for the ego's sake. But the only hope I've got is there are a few people at work that when driving will do a certain maneuver and say that's a linearism. And it's not a compliment. It typically, I almost careened into some car out there today and I thought, oh my goodness, I just nearly had a wreck with someone. I hope they don't come to my Sunday school class. And then I thought, well, what the heck if they do? They know I'm a horrible driver already. So, um, Augustinian though... The, his philosophies and what he had to say in his theology and his approach to things biblical are a whole field of study because he wrote on so many different areas. You see, this guy wrote Christian material over a 40-year time span. And, and um, I don't know how many of you have been Christians for over 40 years. Raise your hand. How many of you hold all of the same positions and understandings about God today that you did 40 years ago? Haven't changed a viewpoint in the world. Hold your hand up. We don't have a hand going up. When I was 24, I had this brilliant idea for this Christian book I was going to write. And I sat down with my minister and I said, I'm going to write this book. Let me tell it to you. Bam, bam, bam. He said, well, write it, but don't send it anywhere. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because 15 years from now, you're not going to agree with 80% of what you just told me, and you'll be real embarrassed if you send it out. I thought, how dare you? I am so right about this. And he was wrong. It was a larger percentage than that. But <laughs> Augustine wrote for over 40 years, so you can read his early stuff and you can read his later stuff and say, well, those kind of contradict each other because he continued to grow in the Lord, as we all do. And that makes it fun to read his stuff as well. One of the resolutions I have if I ever find the time in my life is to go back and reread not only the Augustine I've read, but the Augustine I haven't read and read it in chronological order. I mean, we've got today a hundred 
111 of his books. If we think, well, Augustine's Confessions or The City of God or you know, literal commentary on Genesis or commentary on Psalms, and you know, that's about all we think about. But there's 111 of them written over a 44-year time span that I would love to read in order, but I haven't. Augustine covers many topics in his writings. He writes about faith and reason, you know, what it means to... How much confidence can you have because of intellectual reason that God is there versus where is the leap of faith? He doesn't use that word leap. But where do you take... A, uh, where is it a faith departure versus reason? And he writes on that very, very scholastically. He writes on basic philosophy, um, questions of how, how did the soul come into being? Did God create souls with, you know, when, when he doesn't use the word embryo, but when the sperm meets the egg and, then, and an embryo is formed or there is a fusion and you have that first cell, is that when God creates the soul to put into it? Does, is the soul created when mankind is actually uh, 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 conceived? Or was the soul created when God created Adam and Eve? And within Adam and Eve, those souls are there, and, 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 or at least within the netherworld or something, and at that point it comes in. Or were souls created before Adam and Eve, and then the bodies are just there? And I mean, he probes this. He probes, how do we know? How do we know that what we think is really going on and not just a dream? So, he covers that. He writes on the Trinity. He writes an entire 18 pages book, a little booklet, I guess we'd call it, on the Trinity. He's a firm believer in the Trinity. I pulled out something he said. I think it's hilarious. If you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your salvation. But if you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. <laughs> he then proceeds to try and understand it. And after 18 pages... It's still a mystery. He writes on Jesus. He writes very touchingly, very movingly on Jesus. I love this passage. I pulled it out. Out of love for the masses, God Most High bent down and subjected the authority of the divine intellect even to the human body in order to redeem mankind. Out of love for you and me, God Most High bent down. I love the way he uses that word. He bent down and he subjected the authority, all of the power, all of the glory, the authority of the divine intellect, mind, of, of divinity, even to the human body to redeem mankind. That's Augustine saying what Paul says in Philippians 2. When Paul says, have 2, 5 through 11, have the same attitude in yourself, which is also in Jesus Christ, who, even though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further to men, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then Paul adds the redemption by saying, Therefore also God highly exalted him and placed on him the name that's above every name that, as we heard this morning, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. 
those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Augustine writes it. And Augustine was very steeped in Scripture. Augustine quotes Scripture more than any writer we've discussed so far. And, and, and Augustine was his thoughts, his words. And this is a man who doesn't come to Jesus until he's in his 30s. Okay? I, Mike Moriarty tells me repeatedly that you, 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 it doesn't matter when in your life you become serious about your faith. It changes who you are. Right? It changes what you learn. Oh, I wish I could go back and change a bunch in my past. But I'm excited to be serious about Jesus today in my life. And I'm excited about the way 15 years from now I'll have a better understanding of God than I do today. So, Christology. He deals with the interpretation of Scripture. That's uh, where I probably should have plugged in uh, the stuff I started class with. Um, how we come to knowledge. Uh, uh, for example, how, how does vocabulary work? How do we come to know what green is? Well, it's because someone teaches us and points out green. And so that word green becomes a picture in our brain. And, and, and people have written, secular people have written on what Augustine has to say about these things. Um, we're going to focus on three topics. And I need to know exactly what time it is because I didn't bring my watch. 11.36. 11.36. 36, 24, that's 57. Okay, I'm there. We're going to focus on three topics this morning. Our first uh, topic is good and evil and what Augustine had to say about good and evil. Then we're going to look briefly at what he had to say about church and the sacraments. And finally, we're going to look at what he had to say a little bit about grace and free will. I've gone into more detail on that in your handouts, which, by the way, are very sloppily written. Had a lot of trouble getting the lesson out this week, and I was running very behind schedule. I'll edit it better one day and offer you a better copy. If you read it, uh, don't do it at night. You'll go straight to sleep. Um, now, we're going to start with good and evil. That's the first thing we're going to discuss, what Augustine had to say about good and evil. And if, to do this, I want to, I want to quiz you. Um, I've got uh, uh, Miss Mickey down here who is a school teacher. I'm sure a number of... Where's Ellen? Ellen's a school teacher. She's not here. She's Tell her I, I missed her. Any more school teachers? Raise your hand. Okay. Good, good, good. Evelyn, are you a school teacher? You're working... Well, that's a teacher to be. That's the same thing. Um, okay, well, this is school, and we're going to have a quiz, okay? Question, who made, who created good things? <gasps> ding, 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 we already have a winner down here, God. Did anybody miss that? Raise your hand, and let's get Howard up here to pray for you. All right. Who made the good things? That's good. Now, don't answer this one out loud unless it doesn't mind. You don't mind getting embarrassed if you're wrong. Okay? This one's a tougher one. This is hard. What's the square root of 369.4? No, that's not it. Um, who made the evil things? God created evil. God created evil. Evil. Hmm, someone says God. Well, you see, the idea of God creating evil means that God, who is good, made something which is evil. 
which makes you wonder how good God was to start with if he could even think of, much less make something so evil. And this was a real problem for early Christians. Early Christians really struggled with this because philosophically it didn't make sense. And this is what fed a lot of early Christian heresies because a lot of early Christians and even people today that I know assume that God made all the good things but there must be some equally bad or maybe a not quite as powerful being, we'll call him Satan, the enemy, who made the evil things. And so God makes the good things and Satan makes the bad things and there's this big eternal fight and we know ultimately that God wins. I know people who, who believe that. Um, do you remember last week I told you that uh, uh, for a period of time, maybe around seven to ten years, Augustine was involved in a cult? His cult was called Manichaeism. Let me explain what the cult taught. The t- cult taught that there was a very good and noble God who made all of the good things that we see. But he had a very evil, wicked counterpart who made all of the evil, wicked things. And the evil, wicked counterpart came to the good and noble God and said, shall we have a duel to see who is more powerful? Shall we have a creation and let's see who wins the people? And the good and noble God engaged into battle with the evil counterpart. And this provided the intellectual explanation for the thinkers in the world as to why there is good and why there is evil, why there is a struggle between the two, and why that which is noble within us says we should side with the good and stomp out the evil. Okay? That was the cult that... uh, uh, and by, and, 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 and uh, uh, Augustine was involved in that for some time. So this cult, for example, would answer the quiz, who made the evil things, and say, Satan. All right? Now, Augustine leaves the cult before Augustine becomes a Christian because Augustine is convinced that this cult doesn't really have all of the right answers. In fact, Augustine met the big Lord High muckety-muck guru leader of the cult and ask him the perplexing question that Augustine had that seemed to be stump the Manichees, okay? And the leader, Faustus, couldn't come up with a satisfactory answer. So Augustine decided, "Ah, that's a bunch of hullabaloo. The trivia, the question was, if God is so good, pure, and noble, why did he agree, agree to engage in battle?" Because if God is good, pure, noble, and all-powerful, then he can't be harmed by evil. So it's not like evil is going to win if he doesn't engage in battle. God wins. If he engages in the battle, he, he, he wins, but evil gets to propagate further. Which means God, who doesn't create evil, helps it spread. So he says, this just doesn't make logical sense. And the guy didn't have a good answer. Ultimately, how many Manicheans have you met in your life? None. Why? They're gone. Why? They died out. Why? Augustine. He destroyed that cult, man. He took it apart. 
He wrote book after book and tractate after tractate and said, here are the problems with the cult. And he was in a good position to do that because he'd been in the cult for almost a decade. He hadn't risen to the top level. The top level got to have like all the sin you wanted because you realize that there's this big battle and, and you know, it's cosmically dealt with and so you might as well sin anyway because it doesn't matter to you. He didn't get to that level. But he was in the level right below it. He was teaching at the cult. And he knew the cult. And I'm here to tell you that uh, whatever you've been through in your life, God's put you through it because you're able to use that now for God's good. It's whether you've been through something good or whether you've been through something bad. You could be involved in sin. You could be involved in any number of things. And God, who delivers you from it, is able to use you through that. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you're an alcoholic who God has delivered from alcohol, that you go back to the bars and take the drink in front of you and say, let me teach you uh, why the sins of alcohol. Because that's kind of like temptation. But I am telling you, if you're an alcoholic and God has brought you through it, that what you've been through is something that God can use in your life to teach other people somewhere, somehow. Doesn't matter what your sin is. Doesn't matter what you've been caught up in. God takes you and uniquely uses you and me. And that's a wonderful thing. So, who made the evil things? Augustine had an answer. You know what his answer was? None of the above. None of the above. And Augustine is the first to express this. And it's really... I say first, yes, first to express this. That's said accurately. There are some other Christian theologians that had these, you know, were, were kind of working on these thoughts. And it kind of comes from some Neoplatonism and some other things. But it's Augustine who walks out and says, guys, let me explain it to you. Here's the answer. None of the above. You say, well, well I see evil. Where did it come from? Augustine says, you're thinking of evil as something that was created. It's not. Allow me to try and explain. God creates everything that's good. Now, when God makes in Genesis, because he's a literal man, when God makes man, when God makes the day, when God makes the world, God pronounces something over it. God says, and it is good. God never said it was perfect. God alone is perfect and unchangeable. God made something, though, that was good. It wasn't God had an extra O in it. It was good. Okay? So God makes good and only good. But good is capable of being corrupted. And when good is corrupted, that's what we call evil. Evil is good that is corrupted. In our terminology, one of the things that helps me understand what he's saying is to think about cancer. If you know anything about cancer, cancer is the, the origin of cancer is when one of your cells, which is a good little happy cell, for some reason starts behaving wrong and becomes the DNA becomes corroded and it starts replicating out of control. And so, so he says evil is when something that's good has because people have free choice. God made us with free will. So we're able to choose 
to live within the good or we're able to choose to deny the good or misuse the good or abuse the good. And when we do that, that we call evil. Evil is mistreating the good. Nobody made it. It's corruption of what God had made. Here's an example. God creates all good. You know what's good? Eating. I think that's a carrot. Carrots aren't great. <laughs> right time, right place, though. They're good. Huh? She's eating the carrot. God has made something that is good. But man has free will. And man can take that good. And do you know what we can do with it? We can abuse it. That's called gluttony. It's one of the seven sins. Okay? You, <laughs> fry it. I just triggered what you said. <laughs> and give me one of them fried Milky Ways with powdered sugar on top to sweeten it. Um, you can eat, you can do something good, but you can take good and you can abuse it. Sexuality. Sexual conjugation between a husband and wife. That's good. That's a gift from God. Okay? But you can take it and you can use it in fornication or adultery. And that's evil. It's the same deed. When you do it right, when you live within God, it's good. When you choose to corrupt it, it's evil. Don't say God made the evil. God made the good. And we with free will have taken the good and used it for evil. Turned it into evil, corrupted it. Does that make any sense at all? Okay, he, doesn't, he's, he says at the end, he says, I'm not saying that I got it all figured out. Because why did God make people with free will who could take good and corrupt good with his knowledge that it is going to happen? Aren't you net-net saying he made evil? He says, no. And if you want to understand it fully, go ask someone else. Because at that point it becomes a mystery to me. But he says, of this much I am sure before we get to the mystery level. Now let's talk about the Trinity. You see, he wasn't adverse to mysteries. Um, now, that's topic one, good and evil. Topic number two, shifting gears to the church and sacraments. After Augustine destroyed the whole Manichee cult, <laughs> not fully, but came pretty close, he went about destroying the next disease he saw afflicting his flock. It was called Donatism. Those Donatists and their blasted church piety, purity, whichever word I wanted to use up there, purity, piety, same thing. You know who the Donatists were? Okay. You remember back when they had martyrdoms before Constantine made Christianity the national religion? And if you're a Christian, you get killed. Some bishops would get called down in front of the Roman authorities and they'd say, Okay, Moriarty, you either confess Caesar is Lord and you deny Jesus or we're going to kill you. Now, Moriarty, he'd say, Take me, baby. I'm ready to meet my Lord. But some people weren't so disposed. Other people might say, 
Well, do I have to say it very loud? You know, and then secretly, behind their back, they do this number to rationalize it. They cross their fingers. They rationalize, oh, well, surely God doesn't want me dead. Because okay? I can bless him a lot more alive. So they would recant their faith. Now, Augustine comes in and he makes Christianity the national religion. And a lot of those recanters came back and said, uh, remember me? Can I be bishop again? I didn't really mean the recanting. I'll confess I lied. Okay, I'm forgiven. Can I do it again? Can I, can I be bishop? And some of those men were put back into leadership positions in the church. The Donatists said, wrong. You sinned. You denied Jesus. You're apostate. You fell away. You can't run a church anymore. You can't be in leadership in a church. And not only that, anything you touch is tainted and polluted. So, these guys, because Augustine's about 400 A.D., so most of that first generation of recanters have died off. But those recanters appointed their successors. And the Donatists said, well, those successors, they're no good. The guy who appointed them's no good. So we have our own movement of pure people that would die for their faith. These that recanted rather than died, they fell away. They polluted the church. And so when they do, when they are their progeny, their offspring, their successors do anything within the church, it's polluted. It's not real church. And Augustine responded and he said, no, no, no. There is one church. That's all. There's one church. And in the church, you got good and you got bad till Jesus comes back. And you got good preachers and you got bad preachers. You got good people, you got bad people. That's the nature of the church. But the church is one. And what you have done, Donatist, is you have divided the church, and that's a sin. That's the very thing Jesus prayed would never happen in John. That the church would be one. There's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as perfect leaders in the church. Until the Lord comes back. That's what Augustine had to say. And he put that movement... Uh, he, he did a lot. He says, now as for these preachers who are giving away the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism... He said, the reason those work isn't because the preacher or the, the bishop doing it is pure. The reason those work is because God is in it. God's the key, not the preacher. If you got baptized by a bishop that has sin in his life, that doesn't mean your baptism was invalid and didn't count. Because baptism is between the baptized and God. If someone hands you the Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper and it's administered to you by someone who has sin in their life, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't meet you at the bread and the cup. Because Jesus is the key. Now, Augustine did say within the realm of that, though, he believes in apostolic succession. He believes then what you do is you look for the church that has been 
you know, the apostles were given the church and the apostles appointed their successors and their successors appointed their successors. And so you look to apostolic succession, not purity. And that was his approach. So that's number two. Now, finally, grace and free will. I've got five minutes. How much more time? What time is it? I've got six minutes, man. We're cruising. Okay. Grace and free will. Now, if you thought predestination started with John Calvin, <laughs> go back and read some of this guy. This guy, uh, uh, Augustine, especially at the end of his life, he was pretty predestination guy. Okay? But I'm not going to focus on that as much as I am the, the big controversy he had. Here it is in story form. There had been changes in the church since Constantine made it the national religion. Before Constantine made it the national religion, Christians died for their faith. If you have a faith, and and if you get caught and the government's ticked off at you and they choose to, they can kill you for believing in Jesus. How many people who are only half committed to Jesus do you think are going to show up for that service? It really serves to weed out the semi-committed. Because the people that are there are people who will die for their faith, by and large. Okay, then, then uh, Constantine comes, makes Christianity the national religion. Now all of a sudden, not only do you not have to die for your faith, but hey, if you're going to church, sometimes you get a better job. You can move forward in politics. You can get uh, benefits. Now, all of a sudden, it helps you to go to church in society's eyes. And are you surprised and shocked to find out that there were a lot more people going to church that weren't necessarily willing to die for their faith? I found a picture of one of them. Okay? Now, in 405 A.D. Yeah, thank you. We need to keep him up there for a minute. In 405 A.D., in comes this monk named Pelagius. He's from Britain, and he's a monk. And he comes to Rome in 405, and he sees this clown. And he sees these people going to church who live this life of utter disregard for sin. And he thinks about it. And he does some investigation. And do you know what he decides? He says, this is Augustine's fault. I know whose fault this is. I have found him out. See, Augustine has been teaching people that man is absolutely sinful without God's intervention. And so these are people who are just wandering around saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm sinful because God hasn't intervened and taken this sin from my life yet. And Augustine's teaching people they can live in sin. So, he says... You see, Augustine's idea of original sin, that's Augustine and Paul. Augustine's, I don't want to give Augustine too much credit because Paul wrote about it in Romans 5. But um, uh, Augustine's idea that all of us are sinful until God intervenes in our life and brings purity. He says, that's hogwash. He says, man is morally pure. You can live without sin. In fact, when he's called in front of a committee to see if he's a heretic, the committee asks him, are you saying it's theoretically possible for a human being to live their entire life and not sin? He says, absolutely. You just choose not to sin. 
It's all choice. There is no sin nature in us. I don't know if the guy had kids. I don't think he did. You have kids, you know there's a sin nature. <laughs> James Dobson says that. I think he's dead on. Um, but, but this guy says, uh, says, he says, now I don't think anybody's ever done it except Jesus, but I think you could do it. And what we need to do is we need to tell these hippies out on the circle that are living this morally repugnant life that, that they're going to hell if they just don't choose to live right. That this is a matter of choice. Augustine is grace stuff. Says, huh. So Augustine says, oh yeah, I'm a writer. Get ready, boy. And he starts writing things like, Pelagius is a heretic. He writes... Man is born with Adam's sin. Period. And he goes to Romans 5 to show it. He says, Pelagius has Christ die for nothing. If man is morally pure, if man can just make the choice, then why on earth does Jesus have to die? He has to die because as Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, life has come through one man. Jesus Christ. He's the new Adam. He's the new creation. Because in Adam, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. But in Christ, we have forgiveness. And he puts a new nature within us. And it's the kind of thing where he says where no man can boast. Not one of us who does a good deed does it because we're morally pure. We do it because God has intervened in our life. Praise God. He is doing it in us. May I never boast in anything save the cross of my Lord. I mean, he's pretty strong. He says, the human race lies ill, not with diseases of the body, but with sin. To heal this huge patient, the omnipotent physician descended from heaven. He lowered himself to mortal flesh as if to the bedside of ailing humanity. This guy could write, couldn't he? And then, whoa! I would have loved to have heard him preach, except my Latin's really bad. I'd have had to have Justin sit next to me to translate it, but uh, pretty good stuff. Points for home. God is light. In him is no darkness at all, not as all. In him is no darkness at all. It's not. I don't, I don't, I, I, with all due respect to my sister that I love, I don't think God made evil. I may not understand where all it came from, but there's not any darkness in God, and He didn't make darkness. He's light. In Him is no darkness at all. Of course, the next verse in John says, if we claim we live in the light, but we walk in the darkness, then we're not telling the truth. Um, God is perfect, but our church isn't. Don't get ticked off at our church. Don't let... My mistakes tick you off. Every once in a while, not often, I get a letter from someone that I've ticked off by something I've set up here. I don't mean to, but I'm human. I make mistakes. The preacher's human. The people sitting next to you are human. Your spouse is human. Don't get ticked off at somebody looks at you. You got that right. Don't. I could, I could lip read that one. Don't, don't get ticked off at the church. God is perfect. The rest of us are all struggling. God saves the lost who can't save themselves. If you've got sin in your life, 
if you are sick with sin, if you are ailing. By the way, theologically, there are three options. Man's morally pure, Pelagius, or the semi-Pelagian view that says we're sick, or the Augustine view that says we're dead. Augustine would say we're dead in our sins. That's what Paul said. God comes to those who need life. He doesn't come to the people. This God helps those who help themselves. That's kind of twisted in a way. He helps the helpless. And he leaves the rest to help themselves. God God is there for us in all of our hurt and all of our needs and all of that. We just need to give our lives to him first and then give our lives to him again and again and again and again. Let him deal with us. Okay? Um, I look forward to next week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the blessing of getting to share with uh, uh, my friends this morning. And I thank you so much for the life of Augustine and that you've secured through the ages so much of his uh, writings for us to be able to read and study and think about. And I thank you for the incredible way you've moved in history uh, to keep your Bible alive, to keep your truth alive, and to to fan the flames of passion and and desire for you that, that are in our hearts. Please help those who are hurting in here. Give them confidence in your power, God of the ages, who meets with us today. In Jesus we pray, amen.